Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Today, we're going to bring you an interview with author Anne Barton. She is a retired veterinarian, a flight instructor. She's an author of eight mystery novels, one autobiographical book, and numerous articles and short stories. Her short story was a co-winner of the Bloody Words Contest in 2001 and is published in Bloody Words, the Anthology. Born in Drumheller, Alberta, Anne grew up in northern Idaho, returned to Canada, and now lives in the beautiful Okanagan Valley in British Columbia, where she is deeply involved with Habitat for Humanity and her Anglican church work, that is, when she isn't riding horses or curling. Before I get Anne Barton on the line, I'm going to invite you to join us for our Readers on the Run segment, when I'll read to you Danger by Moonlight by Anne Barton, which was featured in World Enough and Crime, the anthology, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Danger by Moonlight, written by Anne Barton. Editor's Note. A moonlight ride turns into a night of terror for two young boys in Ann Barton's taut and frightening tale. Hey, Derek, want to go for a ride in the moonlight? Chad asked. Sure, sounds great. Derek's parents were going to pick up Chad's and the two couples would drive into town to attend the Saturday night dance at the community hall, leaving the boys behind. Derek was supposed to stay home and go to bed at a decent hour, but the prospect of getting out from under the parental thumb for once appealed to the 14-year-old. Derek's parents were a bit dubious about letting him hang out with Chad, a cunning 13-year-old who had urged Derek to try chewing tobacco and who knew more than he should about things like sex. But out here on their farms, miles from town, Chad Monk was the only other person Derek's age, and it was natural they should pal around together when they got a chance. There was another reason for Derek's eagerness for saddling up his horse and going for a ride in the moonlight. The previous night, its bright glow had kept him awake, and he sat in the window of his loft bedroom, looking out over the meadow, bathed in brilliant light of a nearly full moon. He had watched the cattle settle down for the night. A group of deer graze across the meadow, heard the owl with its plaintive hoot, and saw a coyote stalk one of the fawns before the deer sensed its presence and dashed away. Sleepy, he had been about to end his vigil and climb into bed when he heard the clop of horses' hooves and the jingle of bits. He watched Chad's older brother, Connor, returning home with his pack string along the road that branched off at a T-junction, about a hundred yards up, the one that went by Derek's home. They stirred up dust from the unpaved road, forming a low cloud that obscured the horse's feet and making them look as if they were gliding on air. Derek could recognize Connor by his typical slouch in the saddle, riding his dark chestnut horse, leading another saddle horse and two pack horses. The last horse in the string was a pinto, and its white rump shone in the moonlight. They clattered across the wooden bridge over the creek, now appearing to have feet like they should, breaking the spell. Derek stretched, yawned, and headed for bed. The memory was sufficient in itself to make a moonlight ride seem attractive. Chad rode up while Derek was still saddling his horse, He swung a leg over his saddle horn, relaxing in the saddle, and bit off a chunk of chewing tobacco. Hey, I know where there's pot being grown. I followed Con one day and found out where he got it. Come on, I'll show you. Derek was startled. He'd never had any contact with pot, had never thought about it, though he'd heard of the stuff. No, I don't want to do that. It's not right. Oh, don't worry. We're not going to get any. I just thought you'd like to know. Know what? Where it's at. Then you'll never have to find someone to supply it to you. I know those guys who grow it, but they don't know I know. Khan doesn't let me have any. This latter sounded like a grievance. Let's go look. But when they got near the place, Chad's mood had changed. 
Let's tie our horses up here and sneak down there. I don't see no one around. They cut across a ridge that separated the valley from the canyon of the creek, where it came down out of the mountains. Derek wasn't sure where they were, but Chad seemed to know every game trail. They were following an old, unused logging road, grown over with brush. When they came out above the site where Chad said the pot was grown, Derek recognized the curve of the creek away from the road and the cabin at the upper end of a brushy meadow. He knew that two men who professed to be working a mine claim lived there. The boys looked down from a steep hillside, traversed by the old logging road. The ridge where they stopped their horses was bathed in moonlight, but the canyon floor was as dark as the bottom of a well. Only vague outlines of the creek and gravel road that ran along the near side of the meadow were visible. They grow it down there on that flat. The brush hides it. Do they do any mining? It's a claim, isn't it? Derek asked. Chad gave a snort. Mining hell. There's no gold here. Come on. They tied their horses among some trees and made their way down the old logging road on foot. They could see the cabin at the upper end of the flat, its door open, spilling out light, with two men sitting on the doorstep drinking beer. The sound of voices came to them, but they couldn't make out the words. They can't see us once we get down on the road. Come on! The main road up the canyon followed the near slope of the hill, the meadow being on the other side. The two boys slid down the bank above the road and ran across it to a grove of trees. They could no longer see nor hear the men at the cabin, but there was no indication that their nocturnal adventure had been spotted. Chad led the way along the edge of the grove until an expanse of grass separated it from the thick brush that covered most of the flat. The grove of trees they had been moving through was still in shadow, but the moonlight now touched the valley floor. Chad signaled Derek to follow him across the open space, as bright as day in the light of the full moon. On the edge of the brush, Chad crouched and motioned Derek to do the same. There'll be some brush to hide the plants, but there should be some right in there. Chad, let's go back. I don't like this. Hey, don't chicken out. No one's seen us. No, let's go back. Tell you what. I'll just go nip a piece off the first plant I see. Then we'll go. Can't go back empty-handed, he chuckled. He was obviously getting a kick out of the danger. Derek was petrified. Chad crawled into the brush and was gone for a long minute. Suddenly there were shouts from the cabin, and Chad scrambled out of the brush. I tripped on a wire. Let's get out of here. Not thinking of anything but speed, the boys made a mad dash for the road. Derek's longer legs put him in front, and as he ran, he looked over his shoulder toward the cabin. Suddenly the ground gave way under him, and he pitched headlong into a pit. Chad fell in on top of him. They stood up. They were in a chest-high rectangular hole dug in the ground, mounds of dirt on either side, a shovel stuck into one of them. The bottom was soggy and made a sucking sound when their boots were pulled out of the mud. They rushed for the open end nearest the road, but the soft earth gave way beneath their boots as they tried to climb out. They fell back, panting. I'll boost you, then you pull me out. Derek lifted Chad and gave him a shove upward to where the smaller boy could get a hold of a bush and pull himself out. He turned and reached a hand down to Derek, who succeeded in scrambling over the lip of the hole. Then they ran. Across the open, moonlit road, up the bank, and onto the old logging road they had come down. There was brush along it, and they threw themselves down flat, peeking over the top to see what was happening. Derek had been vaguely aware of the two men shouting to each other. Now he could tell that they had come down the meadow, one on either side, searching. As they watched, the man on the far side started back to the cabin, but the one on the road below was too close for comfort. They dared not move. Then they heard him call out, and they got to their hands and knees and scurried up the old road, heading for better cover and for the horses. Suddenly a light brighter than the moon flashed across the meadow. They have a spotlight on their truck, Chad exclaimed. 
The spotlight covered the flat systematically from one side to the other. Derek thought they should probably get a move on while the men below were watching the brightly lit area, but the thought came too late. The light swung onto the road and then onto the hillside. It swept across them and moved away. They started crawling on their bellies, but moving even faster than when they had been on hands and knees. When they reached the shelter of some denser brush, they paused. The light swept past again, higher up. I hope they can't see the horses, Derek breathed. I hope the horses don't spook, Chad replied. The searchers had apparently given up on the hillside, and the boys got to their feet and ran, crouching to where they had left the horses. We'll have to lead them over the hill, Chad whispered. If your horse sounds like he might snort or whinny, hold your hand over his nostrils. Derek had a different concern. He remembered how the pinto horse's white rump had shone in the moonlight and was afraid that if the spotlight shone on his horse's white blaze, it would be clearly visible. He tried to hold his horse so that its head was turned away from the source of the light. The pickup had moved down the road and was traversing the area with its spotlight again. Once they were over the top of the first low ridge, they swung onto their saddles and turned down a faint game trail. We'll have to keep it to a slow trot until we're out of hearing, Chad murmured. They can hear horses galloping. I hope you know the way. Chad's laugh was a bit shrill. Don't worry, we're in the clear now. When they were certain they had put enough ground between themselves and the searching men, they hurried their gait, going at a fast trot or canter, depending on the terrain. The sure-footed ponies seemed to have no trouble seeing, even in the dark patches. They topped the final rise overlooking the valley and their homes. Here they stopped to see if it was safe to go further. "'They're probably on the road now, looking for us,' Chad whispered." They saw no light or movement, so keeping to the treed areas, they worked their way down toward the road. The last few yards would be over open, moonlit hillside. Chad called a halt while they were in the last shady cover over the open space. Nothing seemed to be moving. Come on, Chad motioned to Derek. But just as the boys were about to step out into the open, Derek hissed, Wait, listen! They heard the faint hum of a motor. Hastily, they backed their horses deep into the trees. Below, on the road, a black pickup truck rolled slowly by, its lights off. If they go down on the road, we can get to that next patch of shade, Derek said softly. He saw Chad nod. They watched the truck ease around a curve in the road and disappear. Let's go! The boys dug their heels into their horses' sides, making for the shade of a huge cottonwood alongside the road. Derek doubted it would hide them if the truck came back. At any time, the men in the truck might shine their bright spotlight into the shady spots along the road. But for now, the truck was out of sight. The boys looked at each other, doubt still holding them back. Then Chad grinned and barked, Let's go before they come back! He shot out of the shade of the tree, onto the road, with Derek right behind. They were near the T-junction. The truck had gone straight down the road past Derek's home. They swung onto the other road, their horses at a full gallop. They clattered over the wooden bridge, sounding, Derek thought, loud enough to wake the dead. The boys wheeled the horses onto the monk's driveway, rode past the house and right into the open barn. As they piled off the sweaty horses, Chad said, Let's pull the saddles and turn them out in the corral with the others. They tugged at cinches, flung the saddles along the inner wall, and led their mounts by the bridles out to the corral, letting them loose on the far side of the other half-dozen sleepy horses. Back in the barn, Chad grabbed his saddle and hung it by the stirrup on a peg on the wall. Derek looked for a peg on which to hang his saddle, but before he could, the sound of the truck came to them, close by. Get up here by the door, Chad hissed. Derek flung the saddle down and ran for the end of the barn nearest the road. The boys flattened themselves in the shadow of the front wall beside the open door of the barn. The truck had stopped at the entrance to the farmyard. The boys hardly dared breathe. Then the brilliant spotlight flared up, illuminating the interior of the barn. Derek looked frantically back at the saddle, lying in a heap on the floor. To him it looked as big as a boulder, a dead giveaway. 
Slowly the light swung over to shine on the corral. The horses spooked at the sudden brilliant light and crowded toward the rear of the corral. Would they see the sweat-stained backs of the horses the boys had been riding? The spotlight made another traverse of the corral and barn, then switched off, but the truck did not move away. The boys stayed glued to the wall, wondering if the men would get out of the truck and come into the barn. Derek felt Chad inch slowly away. With an effort, he turned his head away from the dangerous mouth of the door to see what Chad was doing. He saw the boy grasp the handle of a pitchfork and ease it down off the wall. Not much of a weapon if the men came in after them. The motor sound deepened and began to move away. The boys stayed glued to the wall until the sound faded into the distance. There was no sound of anyone on foot near the house. Okay, Chad spoke softly. Let's make a dash for the house. I've got to hang up my saddle. He moved back to where he had left it, trying to stay in the shadow until he had to move out into the open to grab the saddle. Hastily, he hung it up. For Christ's sake, hurry! Derek scuttled back to their hiding place. They waited a few seconds, then, when nothing happened, they made their dash to the house, going in the back door, which, like most farm homes, was left unlocked. Without turning on any lights, they scrambled upstairs to a bedroom, overlooking the road. Chad moved to the window, but Derek grabbed him by the shirt tail and pulled him down onto the floor. He had heard the truck approaching again. Now it was quite near. It stopped outside, but there was no spotlight this time. Saving their night vision, Derek thought, so they could see into the shadows. Would they see the sweaty horses this time? After what seemed like an age, the truck quietly rolled away, its sound muffled by that of another approaching vehicle, coming down into the valley from the direction of town. "'That's our truck!' Derek exclaimed with relief. "'I can tell by the sound.' The boys tumbled down the stairs, turning on lights as they went. The elder monks were getting out of the truck. Derek dashed out of the house and dived into the back seat of his parents' truck. "'What are you doing over here?' Derek's mom asked. "'Oh, we went for a ride in the moonlight, then came over here to play computer games,' Derek answered casually. "'You were supposed to be in bed,' but Derek could see that his mom was so sleepy she didn't question his behavior further. His dad stifled a yawn. In the back seat, Derek was the one who didn't need sleep right now. At the T-junction, Derek looked up the road in the direction the boys had come and saw the black pickup pulled over to the side of the road in the shade of a large cottonwood. The moon, swinging around to the south, now threw shadow over a portion of the road. His dad didn't even seem to notice it, but Derek ducked down out of sight. As he got out at their house, the black truck drifted by. Derek was in plain sight and froze with fear like an animal caught in the headlights of an oncoming car. But the truck rolled on down the road, and Derek realized that to be seen getting out of his parents' truck was probably the best thing that could have happened. He scurried up the ladder to his loft bedroom and crept up to the window overlooking the road. Sure enough, the black truck ghosted by again, heading up the valley. He saw it stop at the T-junction for a long minute. Then its headlights blazed forth and it rolled away at normal speed. Derek was still shaking when he climbed into bed. It was Wednesday when the RCMP showed up. Derek was helping his dad split firewood. His mom was in the garden, but went out to greet the Mountie, a sergeant, who got out of the SUV they used for backcountry work. Mrs. Taylor? Yes, what's the matter? We're looking for a missing person. A young man about six feet tall, slender, with long blonde hair and blue eyes. We're asking everyone who was in town over the weekend if they have seen anyone of this description. You were in town on Saturday, weren't you? Yes, we went to town for groceries and stayed for the dance, but I don't remember seeing anyone of that description. He's a graduate student doing some environmental work. Connor Monk packed him into the mountains a week ago Monday and brought him out again Friday afternoon. He apparently drove his car into town, then disappeared. The car is there, but no one seems to have seen him in town. Well, he wasn't at the dance. I'm not sure I'd have noticed him anywhere else. Derek and his dad had come up the road. Mr. Taylor? 
No, I don't remember anyone like that. The Mountie looked at Derek, who shook his head. Derek wasn't with us in town. Have you seen any strangers around here? Three head shakes. Thanks for your time. The policeman started to walk back to his vehicle. Derek faced an agony of decision. Should he mention the hole in the ground out in the meadow? When the boys were riding home that night after their adventure, Chad had said to him, That's a grave, you know. Derek had nodded his concurrence. If he told about seeing it, he might have to explain the rest of the incident. He could put it over on his dad, who was easily fooled, but his mom was something else. Derek thought she could read his mind. But, on the other hand, he could puff out his chest and brag about helping the police catch some bad guys. Pride won out. Wait, Derek shouted. The policeman turned around, a quizzical look on his face. I know where the body is buried. Derek, his dad admonished, he doesn't need to listen to any of your stories. But go back to the house. The Mountie held up his hand. No, let's hear what the lad has to say. It's like this. Me and another kid went out for a ride in the moonlight Saturday night. He showed me a place where he says they grow pot. I don't know whether he knows what he's talking about, but he said that. We couldn't see any pot growing, but we did see a grave. Derek. Go ahead, Derek, the policeman encouraged. What made you think it was a grave? Well, it was about that size and shape. I saw an empty grave in town once when we went to a funeral, and it looked about the same size. This one wasn't as deep, though. This was at night? Yeah, but it was real light. There was a great big moon. That wasn't quite how he remembered it. They'd have seen it and wouldn't have fallen in had it been out in the moonlight, but he wasn't about to admit that part. This was an empty grave? Yeah, the shovel was still there. Derek's mom then threw some cold water on the fanciful story. But if this man left the area on Friday, even if this was a grave, it couldn't be his. But that's just it, Derek insisted. Con didn't bring anyone out on Friday afternoon. I was sitting up looking out over the meadow on Friday night. It was real clear moonlight. That's why I wanted to go riding on Saturday night. Anyway, I saw Con coming home with his pack string way late that night, and there wasn't anyone with him. He was leading the other saddle horse and his pack horses. I watched them for quite a while. Do you remember where this place was? Could you find it again? Oh, sure. It's up the canyon where the land sort of levels out, and the creek swings way wide out around a sort of brushy meadow. Two guys have a cabin at the upper end. They're saying it's a mining claim. Oh, that place, Mrs. Taylor exclaimed. That used to be my favorite fishing hole until those guys set up their cabin there. I took my dad up there last summer when he came to visit. If you go way out where the creek bends around, it undercuts the bank and makes a deep hole. You can literally catch your limit in that one spot. But you quit going. Why? When Dad and I were out there, one of those guys came down and told us to leave. He was wearing a gun and sort of had his thumbs hooked into the gun belt. We said we had a perfect right to fish there. We weren't interested in gold mining. He just stood there and watched us. It was sort of creepy, so we decided to go on down the creek and leave him alone. I don't know whether you realize how lucky you are to be alive, the policeman said. Yes, we know that place, and Derek, yes, they do grow pot there. Mrs. Taylor, if you and your father had stumbled onto any of their plants, you might be the ones in a grave up there. But neither Dad nor I would even know what marijuana looks like. The man who was watching you wouldn't have known that. Oh, my God, she turned pale. The Mountie turned to Derek. Could you show us exactly where this hole in the ground was? I think so. I'll take Derek with me. You folks can come also if you want. Then, seeing Mrs. Taylor's look of distress, he added gently, It's perfectly safe. Those men have cleared out. I'll have some reinforcements out there as well. When they came to the meadow, Derek said, It's near this end, not up by the cabin. The Mountie drew his SUV off the road into the shade of a large pine tree. Derek's mom pulled up behind them. His dad had stayed at home, saying he had work to do, and it was probably all a fancy daydream anyway.
they got out. Now, can you show me where this hole was? I think so, especially if I can go up on the hill. That's where we were. Okay, go on up. Derek walked along the road for a ways, looking for the faint remains of a logging road, where they had made their way down and where they had scrambled on their bellies back up. He spotted the main area and pulled himself up the bank, hanging on to brush. It took him a lot longer to get up on the old logging road than it had done on Saturday night, when they'd had the devil on their tail. He stood up and looked back down toward the meadow. Unable to spot the place where the grave must have been, he made his way up the faint road until he reached the clump of brush he remembered hiding behind. He looked down at the meadow, letting his eyes traverse the ground, trying to recognize some clear landmark. There was no sign of a grave. I know it was there because we fell into it, he told himself. He moved back down, slowly, looking for the tracks he and Chad had made, climbing back up on the road. I wonder why they didn't look for our tracks instead of going up and down the road, he thought. He couldn't understand why the men who were looking for the boys had missed what seemed so obvious. There it was! From above he could make out the oblong of disturbed earth, covered now by brush, which was beginning to wilt. Hey, he called out, it's right down there, he pointed. The sergeant moved up the road, looking as he went. A little further. There, you're right opposite it. Other policemen had arrived on the scene by that time, and Derek heard the sergeant giving orders. Two of the new men scrambled down from the road onto the brushy meadow and started moving away from the road at a right angle. A little to your left, Derek called. The men moved on. You're about there. A moment later, Derek saw them halt, move a few pieces of brush, and call back to the sergeant. Yeah, there's a freshly filled in hole here, all right. Better send some shovels down. Derek sat on a rock, not willing to go near where the others stood and lose his grandstand view. The men dug away at the soft earth, sweating in the midday sun. Abruptly they stopped and began to brush dirt aside with their hands. One of them straightened up. Sarge, you'd better come down here. The sergeant followed the trail the other men had made, stopping at the edge of the area that had been dug out. The two others continued to move dirt by hand. Derek could see what looked like a leg, encased in blue jeans, the foot wearing a hiking boot. The men worked upward along the body. One started to uncover the head. The sergeant turned back to the road and walked to where Derek's mom was standing. Derek could hear his voice clearly. We owe it to your son. Actually, this was not a graduate student gone missing. This man was one of ours, trying to get the lowdown on this so-called mining claim. He has been shot in the back of the head. Derek saw his mom grab hold of the door handle of the pickup to steady herself. Suddenly Derek saw a movement out of the corner of his eye. Turning to look across the canyon to where the steep hill rose above the opposite side of the creek, he could see a man on horseback and recognized him as Con Monk. Monk reined in his horse, studied the activity below, and started to back his horse out of sight. He spun the horse around and trotted swiftly and silently back into the trees, just as the boys had done on Saturday night. Derek had a sudden intense fear that Con might have seen him and known that he had been the one to rat to the police. He threw himself down the hillside and ran to the sergeant. Hey, I just saw Con Monk come down the hill over there. When he saw you, he turned his horse and rode away. Thanks, son. The Mountie went to his SUV and could be seen giving orders over the radio. There must be other police around nearby, Derek thought. The sergeant came back to where Derek and his mom were standing. He seemed to notice Derek's sudden fear. Mrs. Taylor, I think you should take Derek home now. It isn't going to be very pleasant here. We'll be by later to get a statement from him, but we are really thankful for his powers of observation. We might never have found this grave. Derek's mom nodded, still unable to speak. The two of them got into their pickup, and Mrs. Taylor carefully turned it around and started back down the canyon. When they had reached the big meadow valley, 
she found a spot and pulled over to the side of the road, shutting down the engine. She turned to her son. The uncompromising expression on her face was one Derek knew very well. It was what Derek thought of as her dark look, and it boded no good to the boy. Now, young man, I think you have some explaining to do. And this has been a Readers on the Run segment brought to you by Dead to Rights, titled Danger by Moonlight by Ann Barton. For our readers, if you'll go to our Dead to Rights Facebook page and answer the following question, you'll be qualified to win an Amazon gift certificate or a Smashwords gift certificate. For those of you who are not familiar with Smashwords, a gift certificate to Smashwords will allow you to purchase ebooks that will fit on any e-reader other than Kindle. So the choices, again, are an Amazon gift certificate or a Smashwords gift certificate. Just let me know what your preference is. And now the question. What was the name of the protagonist in Danger by Moonlight? And his name, of course, was Derek. And that brings us to our author interview segment. Please stay with us as we get Anne Barton on the line. Hi, Anne. It's Donna. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you this morning? Oh, pretty good. <laughs> good. And how is sunny BC today? <laughs> sunny BC here is cloudy. Oh, it is. warm. <laughs> And you've had an unseasonable amount of snow this year, too, haven't you? Yes, we have, but yeah. uh, it's pretty well melted now. Yes. Well, I'm very happy to have you on the show today and to talk about your Robin Carruthers character, um, who appears in a number of your books, including, um, tell me a couple of titles. Um, the Evil That We Do. Yes. That's the first one. Okay. And... Um, the last one was The Devil Laughs. And there are a number in between, I know, because yes, Carrick Publishing... Yes, five altogether. Yes, Carrick Publishing published them for you, and they are a beautiful series. And the thing that struck me the most about Robin Carruthers is that she's a, a woman of very strong will and character. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Robin, and is she typical of your other protagonists, both male and female? Well, Robin is the oldest of the ones I've uh, used as protagonist. She's uh, in her 40s. She's a successful um, operator of a flight school um, and has run it for 20 years. She's, uh, it has a good reputation and so on. So she is competent and she's confident in herself and uh, she's rather strong-willed. She insists that people in her school follow her rules, which are based on safety and care of the airplanes and so on. Yes, and um, that does come into play in some of the stories, doesn't it? Yes, that does. Mm -hmm. And um, so that gives me an opportunity for other characters who uh, <laughs> sort of uh, don't... Um, um, follow her rules <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, get in trouble with her. <laughs> yes, get in trouble with her and make trouble for themselves as well because right. um, while she's a, a little bit of a, a, a she's a disciple of strong rules in these things, she's usually right. Well, yes, because her rules are based on safety and the care of the airplane. That's right, that's right. She also has a very strong backbone in terms of moral fiber too, I yeah, think. Um, I, I try to uh, do that with all my characters and have a sense of justice. Right and wrong, which works really well with mysteries because that uh, mystery lovers tend to look for justice in their reading and they really are lovers of justice and that works really well with your characters. Well, uh, the other characters being younger, and in fact the uh, most recent one is a 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, they will develop probably into a character much like Robin, mm -hmm. um, as far as the self confidence is concerned. So a fourteen year old boy is a pretty interesting, and they haven't got there yet. 
Yes, yes. A 14-year-old boy is a pretty interesting protagonist of choice, isn't it? Um, Is this for young adult stories? I believe it is. I believe I know what novel this is for. Well, um, it could be uh, considered an adult, young adult novel. Yes. But um, I wrote it basically as a mystery. Yes. However, they put, I had to, I went to a professional editor for uh, that because I was using things that had happened to me earlier in my life, and I had to be reminded every once in a while, you're supposed to be writing a mystery. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, um, a memorandum. <laughs> I like that because our stories are are far more personal than we ever cared to admit, really, aren't they? I mean, and, and really, our, our, our famous disclaimer, as I said to one other author, is um, that all characters and situations are figments of the author's imagination. Well, that is true, but they're woven into that imagination from our experiences, really, aren't they? Well, yes. I mean, I don't think any author can get away from putting their own uh, uh, experiences or reactions and so on. And that's what readers love about us. Readers want to get to know their writers. I'm not uh, trying to assume what's in people's minds. I love to read, too. And I love to know more about the writer when I'm reading. And the more of that personal touch that's in it, the more I enjoy it, you know. Well, that's the reason why you should write about something you know about. Yes, yes, Um, which you do really well. And that leads me to my next question, which is your stories often feature settings that are rugged or even downright wild. And I wanted to know if that's indicative of your own experience in terms of geography. Well, it's indicative of my past life. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I grew up in that sort of uh, surrounding. Mm -hmm. And I live out west. Mm -hmm. So I'm not entirely... Uh, an outdoor uh, person. I uh, I went to McGill and I loved Montreal and I uh, interned in Boston and I loved Boston. So you so, studied at McGill and and uh, you also spent time in Boston. That's wonderful. Yeah. Took two years of pre med at McGill and then decided I liked animals better. So <laughs> I tra- transferred to Washington State University. Mm-hmm. And eventually got into vet school there. Mm-hmm. And then I had this uh, internship at a major uh, veterinary teaching hospital. Oh, that's wonderful. Animal Medical Center in Boston. I do love animals. And I have to admit, you know, um, I think everybody at some point in their life wonders whether they would like to be a nurse or a doctor. But I have to know myself well enough to know that I think animals might be easier for me to deal with on a daily basis. <laughs> and that's well, not to say I don't thing, love people, but I, I tend to be a bit of a hermit, you know. So. <laughs> well, for one thing, if um, if the owner of the animal doesn't pay you, it's your patient. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's not your patient who's at fault. That's right. Yeah. I like that. My next question has to do with your actual experiences, which we're just starting to touch on now. And um I, I've thought about flying many times in my life, and I'm sure many people have. I'm sure I'm not unique in that. One of my favorite fantasies is just to be high above the clouds, soaring, And uh, but I've never actually flown a plane. I guess I've been too chicken, so maybe one day I'll, I'll get the courage to do it. But I think there must be a real sense of joy involved in it. Can you share your experiences as a flight instructor and what it's like to be in control of a plane? Well, in the first place, I um, I owned a um, Korean War era uh, military trainer called a Beach Mentor, and I used to take a, a lady who'd been in the women's um, uh, flying corps in World War II uh, with me places, and she told me that uh, uh, there was a little rearview mirror in the cockpit, but she could see my face in that from mm-hmm. sitting in the back seat. And uh, she said, as soon as I'd start rolling down the runway, I'd get a big smile on my face. <laughs> I think I would yeah, mirror that for sure. It is enjoyable. Yes, I would think so. 
I would think so. It, it, it's got to be. And uh, the courage, just knowing that you've had the courage to do it and to learn it and to stay with it and uh, then to get up there in the air that way. I mean, it, it, what what a fantasy for most of us. <laughs> well, yeah. uh, the first money I ever earned at the age of 10, I spent on an airplane ride. Wow, wow. We've been threatening to take the kids up on a, there's a helicopter pad on our way to the cottage, and um, we've been threatening to take the kids up in the helicopter one of these days soon, and I hope we do, because that was one of the things I did like about growing up military, was that we would get flip flights, and we'd get little free jaunts around in the helicopter on a regular basis, and I loved it. It was my favorite thing. I've never uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't mean hang gliders, I mean real gliders. Yes, yes, yes. I would think that would be really wonderful. One of the other things that I know you've enjoyed throughout your life is horses, riding, grooming. Right. And have grown uh, up with horses. I've grown up with horses. So it has been your whole life. That's what I was going to ask. You've always been a rider, right? How, how does that work its way into your writing? Well, not terribly much. It's the last book... Uh, Simple Life is Murder, um, the teenage boy, Derek, who's the protagonist, uh, does a lot of writing, mm -hmm. but um, it, I've never used that particularly commonly. Uh, in my Dr. Erica Merrill stories, they go riding. Okay. Well, I can tell you that when Derek gets on a horse, I know that he knows what he's doing. And uh, when he leads the horse around, I, I get the sense that he's well in control of what he's doing and he he's experienced. Uh -huh. So I'm sure that comes from your experience. Well, yes. But uh, remember, at the time he's doing that, he's scared. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's right. I'm thinking of Danger by Moonlight, but you're right. Your latest novel, The Simple Life is Murder, is... Uh, is another place where Derek shows up, and uh... yeah. Well, actually, the um, Danger by Moonlight was a short story I excerpted from the plot of the uh, Simple Life is Murder. Okay. So it, it's the same story. Um, oh. I didn't think I was going to finish the novel, so I like that part, and I made it into a short story. It's a terrific story, and I have to tell you, I hope you won't mind, but I actually used it on my Readers on the Run segment for this episode, oh, So, I, because I really do enjoy the story, and I think our listeners will, too. Um, but it's good to know that, so it really was part and parcel of A Simple Life is Murder, so for our listeners, if you enjoy the story as much as I do, please look for A Simple Life is Murder and uh, get the whole book featuring Derek. <laughs> yes, or, or uh, get the book uh, uh, before you read the show. Yes, yes, whatever, whatever way you like to do it. Now, one of the things that I've promised our listeners, and actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take advantage of getting you on the line because you're way out west, and we really don't yeah. see each other on any kind of basis. Um, we've met, but that's about it. So I'm gonna take advantage while I've got you and ask you two questions. Um rather than my usual one. And the first one I want to ask you is, who are you reading right at the moment? And uh, who have you read recently that you've really enjoyed and would recommend? Mm. The, my favorite uh, fairly contemporary author is um, Dick Francis. Okay. And that's all about horses. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> writer. Now his son Felix Francis has taken over and uh, he's learned a lot from his father mm -hmm. but he doesn't have the ability to tell you what it feels like to jump over a fence on a, on a horse in mm -hmm. the Grand National Race or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, that I think a lot of that comes just with um well, it comes with the passion. It doesn't just come with experience. Um, a person can be as experienced as all get out in something, but if they lack the passion, it's not going to come through. But another part of it, of course, is experience. So so that was Dick Francis, and his son, you said, was Felix Francis. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And he's taken over 
wrote some in conjunction with his father, who is now dead. Okay. But um, uh, he's now writing the stories. Okay. And the other thing I've got to ask you, of course, is any tips you've got for new writers about writing or the book industry or any part of what it is we do that you'd like to impart? Uh, yeah, I would suggest uh, any new writer attend a, a writing school or a seminar of several days' duration where they can uh, do writing and have their writing critiqued yes. by professionals and also by their fellow members in their class. Yes. And um, then the other thing is, uh, especially if they're writing a book, is get a professional editor. Yes. When, when they're just starting out. Yes, both. And uh, I'm glad that you said that because just because we may have good grammar or good punctuation and know the difference between your and your and two and two and two, that really doesn't make a good fiction writer. A fiction writer has to know things about story structure, weak areas, soft areas, yeah. flow, and you really only get that from learning from the professionals. Yes, yes. Well, your stories are structured very well. It makes them very readable. Well, I started out with a very good editor. <laughs> who, who was your editor? Do you mind? Well, uh, uh, that was uh, um, Margaret Slavin, who used to uh, operate Victoria School of Writing, where mm -hmm. I went. And later she had her own uh, uh, editing business in Peterborough, Ontario. She's now retired from doing that editing. Yes. Um, for um, The Simple Life is Murder, which just came out, um, Cheryl Friedman, Friedman. I think almost anybody in the Toronto writing community certainly knows Cheryl Friedman. She is a, a very close personal friend of mine, and she is an exceptional editor. So really, wherever you're located, it doesn't matter where you're located these days, um, I'd certainly recommend Cheryl as an editor to any writer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, she's very thorough. She is. She is. And, and she, and she doesn't... Uh, kept reminding me you're supposed to be writing a mystery novel. Yes. <laughs> her, her number one love is mystery, as we all know. Uh, Cheryl was... Um, was the, uh, the the brain behind bloody words for all those years, right up until yes. the final, right up until the final gathering of all of us in 2014. Uh, I miss bloody words. So do I. So that do I. It was a great way to get to know people like yourself, who I would never see otherwise. Well, yes, and for me, living out here in Penticton, British Columbia, which is really, it's a lovely place, but it's out in the middle of nowhere as far as. Um, being an author is concerned. Yes. Uh, it was my opportunity to meet people in yes. the industry. Yes, and it was always fun, too. That was the other oh, thing. Yes. Um, so hats off to Cheryl for having done that all those years and having given us so much. I don't know what we'll finally come up with to help uh, fill that void. I'm sure we will come up with something eventually, but that was just wonderful. It was, mm -hmm. yes. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining us on Dead to Rights. It's been a real pleasure having you. I'm sorry about the little technical glitches we had early on, but thanks for sticking with it till we could get a clean line going. All right. Well, it's been fun. I like to talk about my books. It has. It has. Don't go anywhere, because I'm going to ask you something else after we're offline. So All just right. stay with us. Once again, our thanks go out to Anne Barton, the author of The Evil That We Do and other books in the Robin Carruthers Mystery Series. Please go to Amazon or to any of your retailers and search for Anne Barton. For our listeners, you'll find her as A-N-N-E-B-A-R-T-O-N. And her website is www.annebartonmysteries.ca. Now for our final draw this week. We'd like you to go to the Facebook page for Dead to Rights, the podcast, and look for this question. What was Anne Barton's tip for writers today? Just to give you a hint, her tip was to make sure that you attend a study group or a workshop for writers. And that's our show for today. As always, we're thrilled to bring you author interviews, 
tips for writers, short stories for our readers on the run, and much, much more, including great conversations. If you want to get in touch with Donna Carrick at Carrick Publishing, the way to do that is carrickpublishing at rogers.com. Be sure to be clear in the subject line what you're reaching out for so I can try to get back to you as best I can. If you're an author, a published author, and would like to be interviewed on our show, please say so in the subject line. Schedule me for an interview on Dead to Rights, just so I'll know what it is you need. And you can also find me at carrickpublishing.com, at donnacarrick.com, at deadtorights.ca. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and all over the place. So thank you for looking for us. Dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.